Happy Valentine's Day, constant listeners. A time for love. That's what we associate the day with. But uh, last year, this time on the Far Metal, we talked about how the not-so-lovely origins of the day originated because of what happened to St. Valentine at the hands of the Roman authorities. Nasty. Uh, Go back and give that start of episode 91 from this time last year a listen if you want a, a rehash. By the way, you can find all prior Far Middle episodes archived on the nickdeolius.com website and also on Apple, Amazon, and Spotify. So for this year's Valentine's Day, let's, oh, what the heck, let's stick to the dark side of the holiday once again. How about that infamous gangland mass murder back in the late 1920s? The St. Valentine's Day Massacre was the cold-blooded slaughter of a group of unarmed bootlegging gang members in Chicago on... February 14th, 1929. Now, this was, I suppose, a form of business competition, mob style, for control of illegal liquor traffic during the Prohibition era in the United States. The uh, shooters, they disguised themselves as policemen, but they weren't cops. Instead, they were members of the Al Capone gang. They entered a garage on North Clark Street in Chicago that was run by members of the Bugs Moran gang. I always thought it was Bugsy Moran. Maybe that's Bugsy Malone, but Bugs Moran gang. They proceeded to line up their opponents against the wall, their competition, and they shot them all in cold blood. The victims included the obvious rival gangsters, but also an unfortunate visitor who wasn't a gangster, Dr. Schwimmer. You talk about being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I guess it's also a textbook case of why you don't want to be hanging around with the wrong crowd. Let's make our first connection for this episode as we jump from one type of brutal competition which is illegal gangland prohibition era fights with blood flowing and bullets flying on the streets, to another form of tough competition, this being the legally sanctioned NBA with blood in the paint. About a year ago, we had a far middle sports dedication to a gritty trio of players. We had Reggie White in football, Rick Tockett in hockey, and Allen Iverson in basketball. Now, there is a special aspect to the last of that trio, Iverson, That transcends sport and has become part of pop culture. It's his globally famous practice news conference. One of the finest examples of how media events sometimes unfold in very strange and unanticipated ways. And then how media will make it into or polish it into something perhaps very different than what was actually going on at the time. Iverson's practice news conference is one for the ages, no doubt about that. Anyone who deals in communications should study it. It's all over YouTube. You just search Iverson and practice and it will pop up 15 plus million views on that one. And please check it out if you've never seen it and watch it again if it's been a while. Now, this happened over 20 years ago. Can you believe it? 2002. Iverson played for the 76ers at the time and he sat in front of media that covered the team. And in his epic rant, he said the word practice 22 times. I counted them all. Every mention of the word is pure magic over that, uh, that interview and video clip. We're talking about practice. You probably know that phrase by now as well as I do. And what's unique about the incident, or interview if you want to call it that, is that if you never saw Iverson play, and you don't know anything about basketball, and you would not know him if he passed you on the street, you would gain an instant feel for and an understanding of the man just from listening to him through this incident. The now legendary rant covered all the things Allen Iverson was known for. He could be funny. He could be prickly. He took pride in his work. Um, He could get frustrated. 
and he was often misunderstood by the media, or maybe I should say often manipulated by the media. But like many things associated with Iverson, that real story behind his words in that famous event, it's a lot darker and a lot more complicated than what's portrayed today. The 2001-2002 season for the Sixers, it ended right before the incident in that interview. It was a big letdown for Iverson and for his coach, who was the legendary Larry Brown, and of course, the overall team, the 76ers themselves. Expectations were high from the successful prior season, and the team that year, it fell way short of expectations. Coach Brown and the, uh, the star player Iverson, they were at each other's throats during that struggle of the season. And after the team season ended, Iverson was late to a meeting and sparks flew between the two again, the coach and the player. Now, player and coach ended up having a shouting match that ended amicably once Brown promised Iverson that he wasn't going to trade him outside of Philadelphia. Iverson wanted to stay stay with the uh, 76ers. So that calmed Allen Iverson down and he agreed to a news conference that evening to confirm the story to the team's beat reporters. And uh, the sort of exit interview, I guess, is what it was supposed to serve as with the media, so to speak. So now Iverson, he disappears prior to the interview in the evening, and he came to the event in a state that was alleged by some as being intoxicated. Larry Brown was one of those who thought that Iverson was drunk. Who knows for sure? You can't say for sure. But either way, the topic of the interview shifted away from the bigger picture of him staying on with the team and moved into Iverson's dedication to practice. And it was a topic that the coach, Larry Brown, could gripe about time and again publicly when it came to Allen Iverson. It was something that always bothered him. Well, that created the combustible environment that led to what is now history. And that's when the sound bites flowed. Here's uh, some of the most classic ones, the ones that you've maybe all heard. I'm supposed to be the franchise player, and we're in here talking about practice. And then there's, we're talking about practice. He said that over and over again. And of course, his exasperated, uh, not a game, right? Practice. The media let him roll on because that's what media does. And what got lost in all of this is what may have been agitating and bothering Iverson more than anything else, more than practice, um, the media, more than his coach, and more than what his blood alcohol content might have been. Because Iverson was still in mourning from the death of his best friend who was shot and killed seven months earlier. Just days before the famous interview, the murder trial for the man accused of killing his friend kicked off. Iverson dove into the topic right after he ran it about practice, and the media didn't pay any attention to it. And you have to dig deep in the archives of the internet to find the tape, the full tape of the full interview today. And you can't get the full Allen Iverson picture unless you see and view both clips of that famous interview, the practice abridged one and the morning extended one. And here's what he said, quote, I'm upset for one reason, because I'm in here. I lost. I lost my best friend. I lost him. And I lost this year. Everything is just going downhill for me as far as just that, you know, as far as my life. And then I'm dealing with this. My best friend is dead, dead. And we lost. And this is what I have to go through for the rest of the summer until the season is all over again, end quote. Hey, I admit I'm biased on this one because Iverson, he was my favorite player of that era, particularly on the court. He was just extremely tough and scrappy. But the practice interview 
from my perspective, is a great example of how media can morph things to fit their desired narrative for whatever reason or for whatever motive. Do yourself a favor. Watch the 15 million view edited version of the interview that focused exclusively on the practice rant, just over two minutes long. Then watch the half hour full interview and tell me if you come away with two very different views on the man. Yeah, we dedicate episode 143 to Allen Iverson, that famous practice rant and how the full true story is sometimes conveniently snipped and abridged by that intrepid media. Iverson wasn't the first, and he certainly won't be the last who learned that today's media should not be blindly trusted to objectively present all sides of the real story. That spread or the difference between the desired image and the full story or reality, that is a theme that pulls us right into our next and primary connection for the episode. The topic is inflation what's actually going on with its root causes and its direction versus what you're hearing from the experts in the business media. There is a wide gulf between the two, I'm afraid to tell you. First, the desired storyline for inflation is a rosy one. The start of 2024 has brought a symphony of assurance from ex economic experts, um, the business media, Wall Street, Biden administration officials, and the Fed leadership, all telling us that inflation has been tamed and that inflation has run its recent short-lived course. A range of economic metrics, excuses, and by the way, on the excuses front, Milton Friedman called this out a long time ago. He once uh, facetiously referenced it as special events, wink, wink, nod, nod, and a bunch of data. They're all offered to bolster this premise and add an air of clinical objectivity that inflation is now held in check. And wishing something to be true, unfortunately, doesn't make it so. In performing an objective analysis, it leads to a starkly different set of conclusions. Unfortunately, inflation has not been brought to heel, and the opposite is true. And it's not just one thing stoking inflation. Rather, there are three broad categories of individual contributing factors. You've got government spending and regulation in one bucket. You've got monetary policy in another bucket. And then you've got geopolitics. And specifically, when you break down those buckets into individual categories or contributors, there are 20 key contributors keeping inflation at elevated levels and perhaps worsening it. Now, I summarized these 20 reasons why, so to speak, on a recent commentary that I published and posted on nickdelius.com for your reading enjoyment. And what we'll do on this episode is we'll run through briefly those root cause reasons as to why I believe that the worst might be yet to come with inflation. And for each one, each contributor, or each root cause, we will pull out a current event story that proves the point and that shows the contributors to inflation, they are indeed occurring today. Now this should be fun, so let's get rolling. Let's start with individual contributors that fall in the government spending, government regulation bucket. There's, there's a few key ones here. And number one is a doozy. Unabated growth in the regulatory state, it makes everything more expensive. The administrative state is exponentially expanding at breakneck pace across all facets of the economy and across about just every imaginable industry. We've talked about that so much on the far middle. If you make something, if you provide something, if you sell it, buy it, use it, report it, the costs of compliance are growing at historic rates. And such costs inevitably are going to be passed down the supply chain, ultimately to consumers in the price of goods and services. An example recently that I pulled um, off the web, it's a story, actually it's off of a newspaper, 
Washington, D.C. restaurants are now adding a surcharge to meal tabs to cover the new D.C. regulations that mandated a tripling of restaurant worker wages. A second contributor is languishing worker productivity. When that gets hit, when that goes down, that's going to mean more cost per unit of output. More constraints are being imposed upon worker efficiency and productivity everywhere you look. Remote work, that's going to come with an inevitable reduction of individual and team efficacies. Um, New labor agreements, they're going to come with hidden but onerous work rules that are impacting things far beyond significant wage rate hikes, and that is going to also impede productivity. Output per worker is declining, and that is going to increase costs. Another contributor, generationally low worker participation rate, that's going to create or is creating skill scarcity. We've also talked about this topic recently on the far middle. Worker participation rate has been declining for 25 plus years and pandemic only made it worse. And it's projected to decline further in the coming years to barely above 60%, which is unbelievable. Now, the reasons, there's a lot of them, but we do know lower participation is going to manifest in lower economic productivity as well as higher costs. Now, there's lots of stories on this contributor to inflation that you can find out there. A good one that uh, that I found recently was a paper actually from the Philadelphia Fed that was titled, Where is Everybody? The Shrinking Labor Force Participation Rate. It is a actually a great paper, a great read. Give it uh, a look if you get a chance. That's on the Philadelphia Fed's website. Another contributor, climate alarmism. It's a big one. It's one that we know very well on the far middle. That climate alarmism and its policies It's making the kilowatt hour more expensive as well as more scarce. Energy, since it's a feedstock for everything, and I mean everything used or provided for in a modern economy, means that if electricity costs increase rapidly and electricity availability decreases severely, inflation is going to be stoked. And climate change policies are designed to do both, along with, by the way, forcing a heavier reliance on electrification. Um, Here's a, a news story. Actually, it's a quote from a news story for this contributor that sums it up pretty well. Quote, retail residential electricity prices in the United States have mostly risen over the last decades. In 2022, prices registered a year-over-year growth of 10.7%, the highest growth registered since the beginning of the century, end quote. Hmm, I wonder what's causing that. Now, climate alarmism and its policies Um, Doing what it does to the kilowatt hour doesn't stop there because it's also making horsepower more expensive and scarce. And all commerce requires some level of transportation in its supply chain. The transportation sector is now effectively state-controlled, where modes and rates are being set by bureaucratic decree. Costs rise, productivity plummets. For a real-time example of that one, by the way, look to California's disastrous mandate of electric trucks and choice declines. And all three of those things they feed inflation. The car rental giant Hertz serves up a proof point of this one where the once champion of EVs, which is Hertz, is now selling one third of its EV fleet and buying internal combustion engine vehicles to boot. The company said EVs had low demand and high operating costs, which are drivers of inflation. Then there's commodities and what's going on with commodities under climate policies. They are going to experience unprecedented demand levels that are impossible to supply and that are going to explode costs. Climate policies 
yeah, they're going to rear their inflationary heads once again, but this time by mandating levels of wind and solar and batteries and electric vehicles that require enormous quantities of things like lithium, copper, rare earths, nickel, aluminum, and cobalt. Quantities that can't be commercially produced in any reasonable time frame and that will manufacture tremendous inflationary pressures for each. Now, here's a headline from CNBC on this topic. Copper could skyrocket over 75% to record highs by 2025. Brace for deficits, analysts say. Yeah, embrace for inflation too, your host says. Hypergovernment spending, that creates private sector scarcity. The U.S. federal government spends over $6 trillion a year, which, by the way, is $2 trillion more than it takes in its revenue. That epic level of spending consumes vast resources in the economy, making everything more scarce and more expensive for the private sector to do its thing. Voracious government activity elevates inflation in the real economy. Soup the nuts. And this is from the New York Times, for goodness sake. Check out this uh, sort of quote. Economists generally agree that those stimulus efforts carried out by the Fed, by Mr. Biden, and in trillions of dollars of pandemic spending signed by Mr. Trump in 2020, helped push the inflation rate to its highest level in 40 years last year, end quote. New York Times, they see it. Another contributor to inflation in sort of the government bucket, entitlements. Entitlements continue to grow wider and deeper, and that drives potentially productive components of the economy out of it and keeping them sidelined. So whether they're social programs or some variety of such, they have greatly expanded from social security, healthcare for all in the form of Medicare and Medicaid, um, student debt forgiveness, and basically and effectively subsidization of higher education in general, um, thoughts and policies on universal income, unemployment benefits, affordable housing, sanctuary cities, open borders, uh, and so on. The list just keeps uh, growing by the week. The scale, the scope of these programs, they swamp the economy with suboptimal government spending. Worse, the programs often discourage potentially productive contributors of the economy from participating in it, keeping them out, or in some instances, pushing them out. And none of this is going to bode well for controlling inflation. U.S. News ran a story a decade ago. This is from over 10 years ago, titled The Shocking Truth on Entitlements. And it's a sobering story until you realize it's over 10 years old. And when you start to update the story and the situation that's described in the story with new entitlement spending numbers, it transforms from sobering to terrifying. How about taxes as a contributor to inflation? Taxes are rising everywhere and for everything. And the tab, when it comes to the tax bill, is going to be passed on through the stream of commerce. Government needs a stupendous level of new revenue to fund its ever-growing self. Existing taxes are going to rise. New taxes will be created. And yeah, some new taxes will be paraded around as something other than taxes, but they're still taxes. And that's going to occur across local municipalities, states, nations, and global bodies. So hello, United Nations, IMF, World Bank, and so on. And you're going to see taxes for driving in cities. We'll call it congestion pricing. Um, taxes for sitting at events. We'll call them stadium taxes. Eating out, restaurant taxes and surcharges. Shopping online, digital taxes. Turning the lights on, carbon taxes. Owning a pet, dog license fees. And flushing the toilet, municipal sewer fees. The Tax Foundation ran a story recently titled, Inflation is Surging, So Are Federal Tax Collections. 
And income taxes, payroll taxes, corporate taxes, they're all up and they're going to continue to grow. Then there's crime. Crime and the heightened security that comes with it, those are inflation stokers. They add costs to retail. Shoplifting and theft, unfortunately, they become societal norms. You see it from the ransacking of trains, carrying packages to flash mobs, stricking and uh, striking retailers left and right, sort of uh, basically uh, making the shelves bare in stores. Businesses, they become paralyzed with inaction. Law enforcement, they're instructed to not pursue the criminals, and everyone begins to accept such behavior as the norm. Yet the consumer is going to pay for the consequences from the lost merchandise and lower choice to the heightened security measures and higher prices are going to be part of that uh, the cost that we pay. The New York Post recently ran a headline that said, the shoplifting epidemic taking over America with a $100 billion annual price tag. Well, you know, someone's going to have to pay for the $100 billion price tag and guess who that's going to be. But, you know, before those goods can be swiped off the store shelves, there's another contributor to inflation, which is state-sponsored terror, and it's making global shipping of those goods to the store both riskier and costlier. Today's global economy, it means that even the simplest of products carry massive, complex, cumulative supply chains behind them. Just to put it in perspective, the route of shipping from Shanghai and China to Rotterdam in Europe, which is one of the most heavily traveled routes in the world, it's 12,000 nautical miles, and it requires a month of sailing. Now, inevitably, links of that supply chain, they are going to rely on water transport and waterborne commerce. I can tell you, constant listeners, it hasn't been this risky since the Republic of Pirates. So when a ship is attacked or sunk or diverted to a longer but safer route or delayed, that's going to increase cost and that's going to feed inflation. Shipping has become much more expensive to insure and to protect. That's also going to boost inflation. Here's a front page headline on a recent Wall Street Journal. Defiant Houthis vow revenge in wake of U.S.-led attacks. Now, that's the group, of course, that's firing at shipping in the Red Sea. And it seems like escalation is likely in the near future. Now, speaking about escalation, how about another contributor? War. Because war is breaking global supply chains and commerce flow. War has never been conducive, of course, to global supply chain efficiency. But today's geopolitical heat map is especially devilish. Consider Iran as an example. You've got Western climate policies that shutter domestic energy, right? That creates reliance on Iranian energy, which creates market volatility and higher prices for oil, which benefits Iranian revenues, which then allows Iran to fund terrorism, which provides the backing for terrorists to attack nations and global shipping, which disrupts supply chains, which drives up prices and scarcity more. Voila, spiraling inflation. And such a dynamic doesn't apply exclusively to the Mideast and oil. You got the same cycle for war in the Ukraine with grain and a potential war in Taiwan with semiconductors. ABC News ran a story titled, One Year Later, How the War in Ukraine is Affecting Food Supplies Prices Around the World. That sort of fits the bill for this contributor. And the list of contributors that fall into sort of that supply chain bucket or categorization, it, it continues on. It goes beyond um, sort of terror, state-sponsored terror and war. We've got deglobalization of supply chains. That injects inflationary 
pressures and higher costs into the system. Today's global supply chains came to be because of efficiencies and economic advantages, whether those were built fairly or unfairly, of each link in the supply chain. And the evolution and optimization that took decades to evolve are now being broken, and sometimes for good reasons and sometimes for bad reasons. But nevertheless, breaking down globalization and replacing it with regional or national supply chains, that is going to necessarily result in higher costs and less choice and greater inflation. Dartmouth published a study that stated, industries that are more exposed to offshoring have experienced lower long-run output price inflation. And you know what? The opposite is true. And the links in those supply chains, here's another contributor, they're becoming dangerously thin and unreliable. That stokes inflation. Decades of just-in-time manufacturing and the optimization that comes with it They've been applied to every link in very long global supply chains, and that results, get this, in over $90 billion in annual cash flow savings for U.S. firms alone. So it's a big deal just in time supply chains. And that has gone from a strength, however, to a weakness with today's geopolitical volatility and deglobalization shift. The once desirable is now brittle. And when one link can't deliver its piece of the puzzle just in time to the next link, The end results are delayed delivery, higher cost, and inferior effectiveness. And those, of course, are hallmarks of inflationary pressure. The Guardian recently reported that our just-in-time world is becoming increasingly crisis-prone. Yeah, that's an accurate assessment, which means inflation-prone. How about this one with uh, supply chain contributors to inflation? Economic policy, it favors directly, sometimes indirectly, consolidating supply in markets into a small group of very large entities, which creates oligopoly power. The current policy, economic, and geopolitical environment, much of which we've been talking about through these contributors, those things cumulatively benefit scale in firms and industries. And scale and concentration is going to allow the few to dictate the supply and price of products to the market down the supply chain which ultimately impacts the price of everything from breakfast cereal to smartphones. Once higher prices are established, the oligopoly is going to be resistant to both new entrants and price discounting. Inflation appears, and then once it's present, it persists. Here's a CNBC headline talking to this one. Excess profits at big energy and consumer companies push up inflation. Okay, speaking of market power, how about OPEC? Because OPEC is definitely now a contributor to inflation. OPEC is back from the dead. Its new version is OPEC Plus, bringing with it monopoly pricing power for oil. What capitalism and innovation slayed, what it killed with the shale revolution, Western climate policies resurrected, resuscitated with draconian prescriptions. Oil is once again controlled by the few, with most of the few being adverse to the United States and the West. Since oil is a necessary feedstock for countless products and services in a modern economy, higher prices for oil, that means higher prices for everything, which means inflation. The Financial Times, here's a story from it. Oil executives warn of higher prices now that OPEC is back. Yeah, I think that warning is a prudent one. Let's jump into monetary policies and contributors that we find there. The Federal Reserve, the Fed, despite touting its independence, The Fed is quite susceptible to political pressure, and it may set interest rates too low. Fighting inflation at central banks, that's never a fun or popular endeavor. 
is monetary policy adjusted to a more disciplined path is going to create short-term headwinds and hardships for stakeholders. And politicians, you know, they worry most about their popularity and uh, the short term. And that makes for a head-on collision between political leaders and what they want and monetary policy and what we need during inflationary times. So don't be surprised that the Fed folds and acquiesces to the politically expedient when it comes to choosing between what is clinically needed and what avoids criticism and outcry. That could result in too low interest rates or cutting interest rates prematurely, which is effectively pouring gasoline on the already raging inflation bonfire. Now, for more on the Fed in 2024, listen to the far middle episode 136, starting at approximately the uh, the 20 minute mark. And by the way, the Wall Street Journal, a recent story from it reported how the Fed is going to feel political pressure with its record operating loss that it suffered in 2023 as it shifts monetary policy. That operating loss was $114 billion, by the way. Yeah, I think the Wall Street Journal is right that that pressure is going to come. How the Fed reacts is going to be very interesting to watch and could indeed be an inflation feeder. And then there's the left. You know, who runs government these days, by the way? We know that the left loves free money, which is, of course, an inflation accelerant. So whether it's under sort of the cover of this you know, very technically impressive sounding modern monetary theory, MMT, or just plain socialism, the left sees free money and negative real interest rates as key tactics to reward the favored special interests at the expense of savers and value creators. Now, the Fed buying treasuries, that's another tactic that's utilized here to attempt to keep rates below market. Free money diverts capital flows into funding inefficient activities. That crowds out more efficient endeavors. And that, of course, is a recipe for inflation. We've seen that the past year and a half. But even with love of free money policies and even with an impressionable Fed, there is another contributor to inflation, which is despite those things, the cost of debt, the absolute cost of debt is inevitably increasing the cost of capital. So the party is over for zero interest rates. And the benchmark cost of debt set by central banks and the risk premiums above it, they're being to a certain level reset toward more normal levels, although still nowhere near normal levels. So capital, on one hand, is still artificially cheap, but it's no longer free. And capital, of course, is the lifeblood of all economic activity. Thus, the products of all economic activity are going to have to reset to a higher cost level to reflect the higher cost of capital. The Harvard Business Review backs this up when it stated the obvious with capital is expensive again, now what? That's a great question. I would have asked it a little differently. I would have said capital is no longer free. Now what? I'm not sure if it's expensive or not. It might still be relatively cheap. Now, I don't know if you've been counting or not, constant listeners, as we went through this list, but we've already covered 19 of the 20 reasons why inflation is more likely to grow than to decline in the near term. Number 20, the last one, is sort of a catch-all, which recognizes that each of these prior 19 individually are their own sort of contributors to inflation, but they also all work in concert. They all accumulate together. And that creates an incremental step-up of inflation in and of itself. So yeah, each of these individual factors are their own contributors, but all of them together, that helps drive an incremental step-up of inflation, a cumulative effect that occurs when they all manifest together. Now, if you doubt the list above that we just ran through, 
consider the past, I don't know, 24 months, two years, are you waiting longer for goods and services today than you were in the past? Have the costs of everything gone up or gone down? And has the quality of your products improved or degraded? Do you have more choice today or do you have less choice? And do you suppose the situation to those above questions will improve or worsen from here? Look, we all need to advocate for moves and policies that ensure inflation abates because we all stand to be robbed by inflation. Our time is about up, so let's close this episode by connecting to the topic of inflation being a thief, what I just uh, tagged it as. And let's connect to a literary star who wrote about mysteries and crimes, including theft. February 14th marks the anniversary of the death of Richard Stanley Francis. Who's that? Well, he's better known as Dick Francis. And he was an Englishman who was a World War II fighter pilot, was a celebrity champion horse jockey, and who became the jockey for the Queen of England, no less. And oh yes, he was a successful novelist in the mystery and suspense genre of over 40 international bestsellers and more than 60 million copies of his books sold. The Queen Mother was a constant reader of Francis's books, and he always got a special first edition to her and said that he did not put in the usual sex and bad language of the genre in his stories because he knew that the Queen Mother would be reading it. What a well-rounded life. So here's an official far middle salute to Dick Francis. May he rest in peace. And may you find a restful mind this week, constant listeners. Bye for now.